welcome to today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for Friday, January 6, 2022. I'm your reader, Steve Forrest. Here is our first story. $940 million Mega Millions Prize, latest of massive jackpots. Streaks of historically large prizes, mostly due to longer odds. From Des Moines, Call it the golden age of lottery jackpots. Or to put it another way, what's up with all the massive lottery prizes? The latest haul up for grabs is a $940 million Mega Millions jackpot with a drawing set for Friday night. The prize ranks as the sixth largest in U.S. history. That comes less than two months after a player in California won a record $2.04 billion Powerball jackpot. Players also won lottery prizes, topping $1 billion earlier in 2022 and in 2021. It's thrilling to see the Mega Millions jackpot grow throughout the holidays and now into the new year, said Pat McDonald, director of the Ohio Lottery, which also leads the state lotteries overseeing the Mega Millions game. But while it may seem the lottery's gods are showering players with repeated chances at hard-to-fathom riches, the credit for the big prizes is actually due to math and more difficult odds. In the fall of 2017, lottery officials approved changes to Mega Millions that significantly lengthen the odds from 1 in 258.9 million to 1 in 302.6 million. They made similar changes to Powerball in October 2015, worsening the odds from 1 in 175 million to 1 in 292 million. The idea was that by making jackpots less common, Ticket revenue could build up week after week, creating giant prizes that would attract attention and pull in more players who had grown blasé about 100 million or 200 million prizes. In August 2021, Powerball also added a third weekly drawing, which enabled the jackpot to roll over and grow even more quickly as people had more chances to play and lose. Mega Millions has stuck with the two weekly drawings. Thanks to those moves, nine of the top ten largest lottery prizes have been won since 2017. Of course, those uber-rich winners weren't quite as wealthy as it would seem. That's because the advertised jackpots are for winners who agree to take their money over 29 years in an annuity. Winners almost always choose the cash option which for Friday's drawing would be $483.5 million. One-third or more of those winnings would, would go towards federal and, in some places, state taxes. Still, it's a lot of money, and lottery players at the Riverside Red X, a large grocery store and liquor store in Riverside, Missouri, said it would change their lives forever. Carol Palmer of Parkville said she would pay off everything, and take care of her three children and seven grandchildren if she won the Mega Millions prize. The 80-year-old said she also would buy a house at a lake. I may not be able to use the lake house for very long given my age, she said, but who knows? I might have to live to 100. You have to dream a little. 
Alvin Brockington of Kansas City, Kansas, said his priorities would be paying his bills, helping everyone in his family, buying a house for his mother, and traveling. He said he has a sister in California whom he hasn't seen in 30 years, so he would like to take the entire family to see her or fly her and other relatives to visit him. Then I would get down on my knees and ask God to lead me to the people who really need help, he said. They say money is the root of all evil, but it is really the person who has the money, what kind of person they are and what they do with it. Brockington, a retired railroad worker, said he also plays other lottery games. Noting that the Powerball jackpot was also up to hundreds of millions, he laughed and said, I'd take care of that. I'd take $1 million from my game. I'm not greedy. Even, th- even that would help a lot. Robert Bowring, 70, of Kansas City, said after sharing the prize with his family, he would find a good organization that would assist people who need help. Bowring said everything is about sharing. If you have that much money, you have to spread it around. Mega Millions is played in 45 states, as well as Washington, D.C., and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Okay, here's another story on the front page of the Globe Gazette today. Podcast offers view into lives of firefighters. Sioux City-based series looks beyond action side of things. From Sioux City, Iowa. In the title of the new Sioux City-based podcast, Before the Tones Drop, there's the mission statement of the fire rescue workers behind it. Watching EMS-based shows, people see the fire department and the EMS and see the action side of things, but what they don't necessarily see is what happened in the firehouse. Sioux City Fire Lieutenant Phil Markand told the Sioux City Journal. So we're bringing you into the world before those alert tones come in. Now on its third episode, the Before the Tones podcast was forged during a recruitment effort, Marchland and his fellow podcaster, Benjamin Moorhead and Devin Shipper, were leading in their capacity as members of their department's Human Resource Committee. We did a Facebook Live Q&A, Marchand said, trying to get some information out so that people applying knew what they were getting into. Once they were able to get Sioux City Fire Chief Tom Everett to sign off on it and find a producer, the trio recorded their first episode and released it on October 26, 2022, on a number of different podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. The first episode, aptly titled The Pilot, begins with some blues, rock, and metallic music before Moorhead sets the stakes introduced his co-host, and gets into a few light-hearted barbs about some of the other rescue workers on the staff. Marchand talks about how he traveled hundreds of miles from northern Minnesota to take the job in Sioux City. And Schiffer explains how firefighting is in his family. His dad, Dave Schiffer, is the fire chief in Lamar's. I really, I didn't really have an option to do anything else, he jokes. Like a lot of debut podcasts, a few seems show. The three occasionally interrupt each other. 
there's some talking away from the microphone and transitions that don't fully flow. I kind of relate it to the first time in high school I played in a band. When you look back on it, you had no idea what you were doing, and that's what this first episode was like. Moorhead added, We found a lot of improvements right away, and even in our second episode, we feel like we've made a lot of progress. As someone who recently got five years under his belt, Moorhead said he has always been compelled to hang out with the older guys and hear the tales they have to tell. I love hanging out at the kitchen table with some of the crews and hearing stories from the past and making memories, he said. We learn from who's ahead of us. That feeling is one everyone involved with the Before the Tones Drop podcast is trying to capture on each episode. They want folks in the broader community to come to a better understanding of the bonds that can be forged when co-workers have to put their lives on the line for one another and are also stuck together for long stretches of time. In other words, give a perspective of what it's like to be a first responder in Sioux City, Moorhead said. Coupled with those perspectives are discussions on the dangers of frying turkeys, PSAs to let people know about the Safe Home Program, which allows for a free smoke alarm, and skits. In the most recent episode, Giving Gifts and Lessons, which dropped this past week, were mid-credit surprise. We want that entertainment value with it. We don't want to target just firefighters, Marchin said. Though another purpose of the podcast is to let fire rescue workers across the city know what's going on at other stations. For the time being, there's only one episode a month, but Marchant and Moorhead are clear that the production schedule could increase if the demand is there. This is extra time out of our work schedules. We spend our days off coming in and doing this stuff, and with that, we don't want to burn out anyone too quick. But we're hoping to find our stride quicker. That podcast is Before the Tones Drop. Okay, here's a uh, third story on the front page of the Mason City Globe Gazette. Iowa faces court reporter shortage. State currently has 33 openings, and crisis could get even worse. From Cedar Rapids, not many careers can guarantee job openings at any given time. But this one, described by employees as interesting, challenging, and fascinating, has 33 openings in Iowa with the annual starting pay of nearly $56,000. Court reporters in Iowa and nationally are in high demand, but there aren't enough people pursuing the career and are not graduating fast enough to combat the crisis level shortage that Iowa courts have been experiencing for the last several years. These positions are crucial to the judicial system because they are responsible for making an accurate, verbatim, official record of trials and other court proceedings. Court reporters are the eyes and ears of the courtroom that judges, lawyers, and litigants depend on every day. State Court Administrator Rob Gass with the Iowa Judicial Branch told the Gazette The shortage continues because there haven't been enough certified shorthand reporter graduates to replace retirees, and many who are working now are nearing retirement. 
It takes two years to finish training, and then students must pass a certification test, which they agree isn't easy. Iowa Court of Appeals Judge Mary Ciccelli said the fact that there's only one school in the state, Des Moines Area Community College, with a two-year real-time court reporting degree has contributed to the problem. She thinks other states may have an advantage if they have more schools offering the program. Even if a school did open, this problem can't be solved quickly. The district court has a large workload, and it's a hard job. We need that live reporting and depend on it for the appellate record. Indian Hills Community College in Ottumwa and Blackhawk College in Moline, Illinois, are working on programs but aren't up and running yet. Gas said they may be lagging because they don't have enough faculty. The DMAC program was offered at the Newton campus, but in the fall, the program went viral. Gast and others hoped that would attract more students, and it did have the largest enrollment in many years with 48 students. Gast said he can guarantee a job to those 48 if they graduate and become certified shorthand reporters. Iowa Workforce Development projected there will be 30 positions available annually through 2028. An industry outlook study showed about 5,000 to 5,500 court reporters across the state will retire over the next several years, creating a high demand for jobs, according to the National Court Reporters Association. The average national medium salary is $62,000, with the top 10 earning more than 100000 Court reporters convert spoken words to text using stenography. They use keystrokes on a steno machine that has 22 keys and works when multiple keys are pressed simultaneously to spell out syllables, words, and phrases. Laura McFall, court reporter in Southeast Iowa's 8th Judicial District, said it's like chords on a piano. Words are spelled out fanatically and allow reporters to type more than 200 words a minute. It's a very unique job, a skill not everyone has or can do, said Sarah Hyatt, court reporter with the 6th Judicial District, which includes Benton, Lynn, Iowa, Johnson, Jones, and Tama counties. We write the words fanatically and then go back and correct correct the record. We also use our specialized software program to build dictionaries of common words and phrases, McFall said. It allows us to write multiple words with one stroke of the machine. The reporters have shortcuts that allow them to write faster than on the QWERTY keyboard that is used for a computer or laptop. To receive certification, a shorthand reporter must pass a written exam and maintain 225 words a minute for five minutes said McFall, who has been a court reporter for 18 years. That is a minimum speed. People often talk faster than that, but the faster speeds aren't sustained in reality like in the exam, McFall said. There may be bursts of faster speeds, but the natural breaks in speaking during a hearing or trial, such as questions and answers, allow the reporter to keep up, she added. The court reporters said they enjoy that each day is different. Depending on the court schedule, there could be family, law, 
products liability, medical malpractice, or wrongful death issues, or numerous criminal cases, including robbery and murder. In district court, I've learned about all kinds of things, said Hyatt, who has worked for the court system for over 15 years. Once I had a civil case that involved dairy farm operations and learned about cow breeding. Kathy Novak, the CIS district court reporter, said in the role, you become somewhat of an expert on almost everything. You get to hear how fires start, how murders are committed, and what makes parties divorce or neighbors feud. You get the inside look at people's lives, Novak continued, and you are forever learning. To this day, I'm hearing and writing words that I had never heard before. Novak and others also point out that there are other job opportunities in the profession outside of court. Shorthand reporters or stenographers can work freelance for law firms doing depositions or in administrative hearings or captioning for broadcasts and educational materials. Sixth Judicial District Chief Judge Lars Anderson said the shortage of court reporters has taken a toll on the ones who are working. In the past, each judge had one court reporter who also provided clerical support for the judge, but those days are gone. Anderson and Judge Paul Miller haven't had a court reporter assigned to them for years. Judge Ian Thornhill said, Thornhill hasn't had one for nine months. Those judges have to share reporters from other judges when needed. This is beyond crisis mode, Thornhill said. Not a week goes by that something has to be bumped because there are no court reporters. Part of the issue is that we can't compete salary-wise for experienced court reporters. Many times, court reporters are running between two different judges who may have hearings at the same time on different floors of the courthouse. Hyatt had a situation like that a few weeks ago. Two hearings were scheduled for 1.30 p.m., so he did one and the other judge and the lawyers had to wait until she got done to start their hearing. I can't imagine what court administration does every day to make all the puzzle pieces fit. Kelly Cortez, 6th Judicial District Court Administrator, said it's a real challenge sometimes making schedules work with fewer reporters. Schedulers usually take the court reporters assigned for juvenile court to fill in for district court because juvenile proceedings can be audio recorded instead. Anderson said courts have tried to ease some of the workloads by doing some remote hearings. In those situations, a court reporter stays in Lynn or Johnston, which have the busiest schedules, and reports remotely while the actual hearing is in a rural county. Gass said he has been working on solutions with the Iowa Supreme Court Chief Justice Susan Christensen, as well as others on the Court Reporter Utilization Committee, that was formed and includes judges, court reporters, and judicial staff. Gass said they didn't feel recording all court reportings was a solution. A hybrid system that would allow limited court proceedings to be audio recorded without a court reporter making the record might help, but could require legislative changes. The Iowa Supreme Court also has allowed court administration to bring back retired court reporters who are interested in working on a temporary basis. 
Gass said the retired reporters can work only limited hours because IPERS, the state employee retirement program, has wage limits. There may be 15 to 20 retirees across the state who could work at any given time, Gass said. Cortez, a retired court reporter in Lynn County, has covered two trials and filled in just to help cover the schedule. It's a great resource, but not a permanent fix. Gass said a few other judicial branch employees have been interested in pursuing the court reporter program, so court administration is working with them to allow them to keep their current position while taking classes. Okay, moving on to the second page. Wild weather driven by roiling Pacific nature and warming. In a world getting used to extreme weather, 2023 is starting out more bonkers than ever, and meteorologists are saying it's natural weather weirdness with a bit of help from human-caused climate change. Much of what's causing problems worldwide is coming out of a roiling Pacific Ocean, transported by a wavy jet stream, experts said. At least one highway in drought-mired California looked more like a river because of torrential rain from what is technically called an atmospheric river of moisture. New Year's brought shirt-sleeve weather to the U.S. east and record high temperatures to Europe and Northern Hemisphere on Wednesday was more than 2.6 degrees hotter than the late 20th century overage. And this is after frigid air escaped from the Arctic to create a Christmas mess for much of the United States. All the ingredients are in place for two weeks of wild weather, especially in the western U.S. Private meteorologist Ryan Mao said in an email. Mao said the big driver is the three-year La Nina, natural temporary cooling of the equatorial Pacific Ocean that alters world weather patterns that just won't quit. It is creating literal waves in the weather systems that ripple across the globe, and on certain parts of the waves are storms where the atmospheric pressure drops low and quickly, called bomb cyclones, that are quite wet, and they travel on atmospheric waves that transport the weather called the jet stream. The jet stream now is unusually wavy, said Mao and Woodwell Climate Research Center climate scientist Jennifer Francis. The storms dip over the warm subtropics and create a conveyor belt of moisture to strafe the west coast of the U.S. I describe the jet stream and bomb cyclones as a runaway Pacific freight train loaded with moisture. Climate change adds more fuel to the locomotive engine. Okay, now we have some in-brief stories. Kidnapping case postponed to next week. The trial of a Mason City man accused of first-degree kidnapping and assault has been postponed to due to illness of the prosecutor. According to court records, the trial date for 24-year-old Moses Eraguin Labra will be termed January 10th at a trial scheduling conference. The January 3rd trial date was continued due to the assistant county attorney, Caitlin Osborne, being ill. The court determined that the one, no one else from the Cerro Gordo County Attorney's Office could prepare for the case on such short notice. Eragin Labra was arrested in June 
on the Class A kidnapping charge and a misdemeanor charge of assault causing bodily injuries. Authorities responded to a medical call around 1 p.m. June 9th at a residence in Mason City where they found an injured party who had reported they had been beaten and locked in a room by Aragon Labra. According to court records, the person was kept at the residence for at least five days and was subjected to sexual abuse or torture during that time. Police said the victim and Aragon Labra are known to one another. The victim was taken to the hospital by ambulance. The parties will meet next week to ensure the availability of all parties when setting a new trial date. Erguin Labras faces life in prison if convicted of first-degree kidnapping. The next story is Nashua, ex-water chief, charged with falsifying testing records. From Nashua, a man who used to oversee Nashua's water supply has been charged with falsifying testing records. Prosecutors with the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of Iowa charged Jeffrey A. Smith with one count of making a false document last week. Smith had been the operator in charge of the city of Nashua's drinking water treatment facility beginning in September 2016. His employment with the city ended in April 2018 following investigation that led him to admitting he failed to carry out required water compliance tests and fabricated testing results in monthly reports sent to the Iowa Department of Natural Resources, the record states. In May 2018, Smith and the Iowa DNR entered into a consent order where the department revoked his state certifications to operate waste treatment facilities and prohibited him from holding future certifications. Nashville Water Supply draws from two shallow wells and one deep well and uses chlorine disinfection system at each well. Under the utility's permit, it was required to test daily for residual chlorine in the drinking water and pass on the results to the DNR each month. The criminal charges allege the required samples weren't taken on January 20th and 2021, 2018, but Smith had submitted a report for the month indicating that the samples were taken. Okay, our next story, a Cresco woman accused of stealing from a nursing home. A Cresco woman working at a nursing home administrator in Stacyville has been charged with first-degree theft and unauthorized use of a credit card after allegedly stealing more than $13,000 from her employer. According to court documents, 39-year-old Lisa Klimish faces up to 15 years in prison for making unauthorized purchases with the Stacyville Community Nursing Home's checking, debit, and credit cards for personal gain, totaling $13,248 between May 5th and July 20th of last year. Klimish allegedly used the funds on her utility bill, vehicle insurance, attorney fees, jewelry, clothing, and pet supplies. First-degree theft is a Class C felony, and unauthorized use of a credit card is a Class D felony. A warrant for Klimish's arrest was served on December 21st. She pleaded not guilty on December 28th, and preliminary hearing is scheduled for January 6th. Lutheran Services gets a $5,000 grant. 
Lutheran Services in Iowa was recently awarded $5,000 from the Farrer Endowment Foundation in support of early childhood program efforts to present to prevent child abuse and increase positive outcomes for Saragoto County children and their families. According to a press release through an evidence-based and comprehensive approach, LSI's Early Childhood Services in Saragoto County strengthen families with children under age 5, preventing abuse and promoting positive outcomes for children. Thanks to the Farrer Endowment Foundation, LSI will be able to better serve children and families in Saragoda County, said Service Coordinator Elizabeth Kenrett in a statement. We are grateful for support from local foundations like the Farrer Endowment Foundation. Through the Healthy Families in America and Fair as Teachers Program, parents receive critical parenting education in the comfort of their own homes. LSI's Early Childhood Workers conduct home visits to advise parents and help ensure children are reaching developmental milestones. The program also connects families with community resources and local parenting support groups. You're listening to the Mason City Globe Gazette on the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and the print disabled. I'm your reader, Steve Forrest. If you have any comments on this or any other IRS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries. The first obituary today in the Globe Gazette is William George Hedgelick. November 16, 1929 to January 4, 2023, in Clear Lake. William George Hedgelick, 93, of Cedar Lake, formerly of Sheffield, passed away peacefully with hospice care on Tuesday, January 4, 2023, at Oakwood Care Center in Clear Lake. Per, per Bill's wishes, he was cremated, and a gathering of family and friends will be held for William Hedgeck at the Timbercrest Community Room, 200 Glen Oaks Drive in Clear Lake, on Sunday, January 8, 2023, from 2 to 4 p.m. Memorials may be directed to Mercy One Hospice. Online condolences may be left for the family at the uh, www.majorrickssonfuneralhome.com. Bill was born on November 16, 1929, to parents William Frank and Rose Ann Hedgelick. He was united in marriage to Rekha May Schober on September 1, 1950. Bill will always be loved and deeply missed by his friends and family. Left to cherish his memory are his wife, Rekha Hedgelick of Clear Lake, four children, Brick Hedgelick of Sheffield, Steve Hedgelick of Sheffield, Becky Karstens of Rockwell, and Craig Hajek of Ventura. Bill is preceded in death by his parents, William and Rose Hajek, and sister Maxine Abbas and her husband, Eddie. Arrangements with the Major Erickson Funeral Home and Cremation at 111 North Pennsylvania Avenue in Mason City, Iowa. 
The phone number there is 641-423-0924. Okay, next we have Arlene Thornblade. January 10th, 1934 to January 3rd, 2023 in Mason City. Arlene Thornblade, 88, Mason City and formerly of Clear Lake, passed away peacefully Tuesday, January 3rd at Mercy One Hospice of Northern Iowa with family at her side. Funeral services will be 1 p.m. Monday, January 9th, 2023 at Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel with the Reverend Craig Luttrell officiating. She will be buried at Elmwood St. Joseph Cemetery. Visitation will be held one hour prior to the funeral. The family suggests memorials be made to the Humane Society of North Iowa. Wiltrude Arlene Thornblade was born July 10, 1934, on the family farm outside of Troy Mills, Iowa, to Harley and Sarah Andrews. She attended Troy Mills High School. She was married to Emmanuel George Blick, Jr. The couple had two children, Bill and Bonnie. In 1973, Arlene married Thomas Thornblade. For over 30 years, Arlene and Tom cared for residents at Opportunity Village in Clear Lake. She later worked at their seamstress, creating customized clothing items for those in need. She made wheelchair cushions, did upholstery and drapery work. She purchased furniture needed for the cottages. Arlene made beautiful silk flower arrangements that were sold in the village store and used in the cottages. While living in Clear Lake on Venetian Village, they enjoyed boating and camping. She loved dogs and had many over the years. Most of all, she loved her family and cherished time spent together. Survivors include her children, Bill Blick of Mason City, Bonnie and Don Drupal of Lindwood, Nebraska, Tom's children, Ann, Julie, and Tom Jr., grandchildren, Benjamin, Aaron, Dan, Amy, and April, eight great-grandchildren, a sister, Evelyn Bekikia, and sister-in-law Margaret Andrews and Juanita Andrews, as well as nieces and nephews and extended family. Proceeding in her death are her parents, husband Thomas Sr., brothers Orville and Bill Andrews. Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapels at colonialchapels.com. The phone number is 641 2372. We have two death notices. Raymond Ball, 96, of Iowa Falls, died Thursday, January 5, 2023, at Eldora Specialty Care. Arrangements are at the Council Woodley Funeral Home in Iowa Falls. Dallas Butch F. Shear, Jr., of Clear Lake, died Wednesday, January 4, 2023, at home. Arrangements are at the Ward Van Slyke Colonial Chapel. Okay, here's a story about the Iowa woman believed to be oldest in the U.S. dies at 115 years old. Lake City, Iowa. 
An Iowa woman who was believed to be the oldest living person in the U.S. has died at the age of 115. Bessie Lorena Hendricks of Lake City died Tuesday at the Shady Oaks Care Center, according to Lamp and Powers Funeral Home in Lake City. Hendricks celebrated her 115th birthday at the home on November 7th and was listed last year by the Los Angeles-based Gerontology Research Group as the country's oldest living person until her death. Born in 1907 in west-central Iowa's Calhoun County, Hendricks was alive to witness news of the sinking of the Titanic, World War I and II, the Great Depression, and both the Spanish flu and COVID-19 pandemics. She was a teacher in a one-room schoolhouse there and the mother of five children, according to the Des Moines Register. She is survived by three of her children. A funeral service for Hendricks will be held at the Lampion Powers Funeral Home on Saturday. The Gerontology Research Group reports that Hendricks' death leaves 114-year-old Eddie Circali of California as the country's oldest living person. Well, I want to read a couple of interesting articles from Ask Amy. Couple plans to invite only vaccinated wedding guests. Dear Amy, my daughter and her fiance are working on their wedding invitations. They wish to invite only those who have received the COVID vaccination who can also show a negative test result prior to attending the event. They want to protect vulnerable friends and family members with health risks. However, the groom's mother is putting a lot of stress on the bride and groom to invite her unvaccinated brother and his unvaccinated family because she doesn't want them to be upset and wants to be able to keep peace within the family. What would you suggest in this situation? From the mother of the bride. Amy says, Dear mother of the bride, First off, this is the couple's wedding and parents should not pressure them to invite anyone they don't want to invite. However, if the couple plans to invite only vaccinated people to their upcoming wedding, this puts them in the position of policing or asking for proof who is and who is not vaccinated. And what about guests who have had two or three COVID vaccinations but no recent boosters? Or guests who are vaccinated for COVID but not for the flu? I do think that reminding guests to take COVID tests at most 24 hours before the event would be helpful. The marrying couple could also have rapid tests on hand and ask guests to arrive 30 minutes before the ceremony to self-test before entering the venue and provide masks and encourage people to wear them while inside. It would be thoughtful for these hosts to remind their more medically vulnerable guests to keep up with their boosters, get their flu shot, and wear a high-quality mask. Amy has another question. Dear Amy, my husband, who is a wonderful person, has a habit of retelling various stories. That's fine, but there is one story that drives me crazy. He has passed kidney stones, which he says were very painful. His sister also had kidney stones. She has given birth to three children. My husband says that his sister told him that the kidney stones are much worse than childbirth, and she would give birth anytime over a kidney stone episode. 
personally, I've never had kidney stones, but I have given birth and it was no sur- no picnic. I find it irritating that he compares the two and tries to one-up me on the pain. Do you have an appropriate response from no stones? Dear no stones, your husband isn't comparing the pain of childbirth to kidney stones. His sister is. She has experienced both and so isn't it possible that for her this is true. I know that no two childbirth stories are alike, and I assume the same can be said for kidney stones. However, in researching your question, I think it's possible that passing a large kidney stone can be in fact much more painful than passing a large baby. Factors to consider are the fact that a woman's body and mind prepare for childbirth. Women anticipate the pain, have a variety of medical and non-medical strategies to deal with it, and know that when the pain is over, they will have a baby. With a kidney stone, there is a lot of mysterious pain before the kidney stone passes, and then as it makes its way into the bladder, the pain can be extremely intense. I can't understand that I can understand that this habit of your husband's is irritating, but neither experience is a picnic. Okay, now we'll turn to the nation and world. Putin calls for a weekend truce from Kiev, Ukraine. Russian President Vladimir Putin on Thursday ordered his armed forces to observe an unilateral 36-hour ceasefire in Ukraine this weekend for the Orthodox Christmas holiday. The first such sweeping truce move in nearly 11-month-old war. Kiev indicated it won't follow suit. Putin did not appear to make his ceasefire order conditional on Ukraine's acceptance, and it wasn't clear whether hostilities would actually halt on the 684-mile front line or elsewhere. Ukraine officials have previously dismissed such Russian moves as playing for time to regroup their invasion forces and prepare additional attacks. Meanwhile, U.S. officials said Thursday that the U.S. will send Ukraine nearly $3 billion in military aid in a massive new package that will, for the first time, include several dozen Bradley fighting vehicles. The aid is the largest in a series of packages of military equipment that the Pentagon has pulled from its stockpiles to send to Ukraine. From Beijing, China, COVID-stretching China facilities thin. Mostly older men and women wearing masks rested on cots in hallways while others slept upright in crowded waiting rooms with numbered chairs. The sound of people coughing and a new patient's arriving on gurneys was steady. At the Chuinglu Hospital in, in the east of Beijing on Thursday, signs of the COVID-19 outbreak stretching public health facilities in the world's most populous nation were on full display. Beds ran out by mid-morning at the packed hospital, even as ambulances brought more people in. Hard-pressed nurses and doctors rushed to the triage of most urgent cares. The crush of people seeking hospital care follows China's abandonment of its most serious pandemic restrictions last month after nearly three years of lockdowns travel bans, and school closures that weighed heavily on the economy and prompted street protests. Okay, briefly in the news. Unemployment. 
The number of Americans applying for jobless benefits fell to the lowest level in more than three months last week, reflecting a still robust job market despite the Federal Reserve's efforts to cool the economy and bring down decades-high inflation. In Utah, a 40-year-old man killed seven family members, including five children, and killed himself on Wednesday, two weeks after the suspect's wife filed for divorce, officials in the city of Enoch said Thursday. Prison Calls President Joe Biden on Thursday signed into law a bill that aiming easing the costs for prisoners to call family and friends. The legislation clarifies that the Federal Communications Commission can set limits for fees on audio and video calls inside correctional facilities. Peloton Find Exercise equipment maker Peloton Interactive has agreed to pay roughly $19 million in fines related to its delay in reporting a defect for its treadmills that caused one death and multiple injuries, the Consumer Product Safety Commission said Thursday. Mortgage rates. The average long-term U.S. mortgage rate rose for the second straight week following six weeks of declines that had given prospective homebuyers a glimmer of hope. Mortgage buyer Freddie Mac reported Thursday that the average on the benchmark 30-year rate inched up to 6.48% this week from 6.42% last week. A year ago, the average rate was 3.22%. In California, damaging winds and heavy rains from a powerful atmospheric river pounded California on Thursday, knocking out power to tens of thousands, causing flash flooding, and contributing to the deaths of at least two people, including a child whose home was hit by a falling tree. And Biden gets tough on border policy. New rules announced will offer legal path to 330K immigrants a month. From Washington, President Joe Biden said Thursday the U.S. would re- immediately begin turning away Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans who cross the border from Mexico illegally, his boldest move yet to confront the arrivals of migrants that have spiraled since he took office two years ago. The new rules expand on an existing effort to stop Venezuelans attempting to enter the U.S., which began in October and led to a dramatic drop in Venezuelans coming to the southern border. Together, they represent a major change to immigration rules that will stand even as the Supreme Court ends a Trump-era public health law that allows U.S. authorities to turn away asylum seekers. Homeland Security officials said they will begin denying asylum to those who circumvent legal pathways and do not first ask for asylum in a country they traveled through en route to the U.S. Instead, the U.S. will accept 30,000 people per month from the four nations for two years. The change came days before a planned visit to El Paso, Texas on Sunday for Biden's first trip to the southern border as president. Do not, do not just show up at the border, Biden said as he announced the changes, even as he acknowledged the hardships that led many families to make the dangerous journey north. Stay where you are and apply legally from there. Okay, here's a story called Green Gains. Six breakthroughs in 2022 that brought the world a step closer to net zero. 
The damage caused by climate change over this past year was at times so immense that it was hard to comprehend. In Pakistan alone, extreme summer flooding killed thousands, displaced millions, and caused over $40 billion in losses. Fall floods in Nigeria killed hundreds and displaced over 1 million people. Droughts in Europe, China, and the U.S. dried out once unstoppable rivers and slowed the flows of commerce on major arteries like the Mississippi and the Rhine. In the face of these extremes, the human response was uneven at best. Consumption of coal, the dirtiest fossil fuel, rebounded in 2022. Countries like the U.K. and China seem to back away from major climate pledges. But all of this gloom came with more than a silver lining. In fact, it's all too easy to overlook the steps toward a lower carbon world that came about in between more attention-getting catastrophes. Here is a list of six encouraging developments from the very momentous year. Number one, Biden's big win changes everything. Just when it seemed that Washington was hopelessly gridlocked in August, the Biden administration and a narrow Democratic majority in Congress managed to pass the Inflation Reduction Act. This new U.S. law, backed by some $374 billion in climate spending, is the country's most aggressive piece of climate legislation ever. Its provisions ensure that for decades to come, billions of dollars will roll towards the energy transition, making it easier to deploy renewable energy, build out green technologies, and subsidize consumer adoption of everything from electric cars to heat pumps. Experts on energy modeling predict the law will eliminate 4 billion tons of greenhouse gas emissions. Number two, the EU taxes carbon dioxide at its border. The European Union started to make good on its pledge to cut emissions by 55% in 2030. The bloc's 27 members reached a historic deal to set up a carbon border adjustment mechanism, an emissions levy on some imports. That's meant to protect Europe's carbon-intensive industries that are forced to comply with the region's increasingly strict rules. Once it takes effect, there will be additional costs imposed on imported goods from countries without the EU's restrictions on planet-warming pollution. A separate milestone from 2022 saw the biggest overhaul of the EU carbon market that will extend it to road transportation, shipping, and heating. This expansion of the policy will also accelerate the pace in which companies are required to reduce pollution. The accord provided certainty to companies and investors, sending European carbon prices to a record high for the year. Number three, birds, bees, and biodiversity get a big break. Just two weeks before the 2022 ended, negotiators at the COP15 United Nations Biodiversity Conference in Montreal delivered a surprise win in the form of a pledge by 195 nations to protect and restore at least 30% of the Earth's land and water by 2030. Rich nations all committed to pay an estimated $30 billion per year by 2030 to poor nations, in part through a new biodiversity fund. Number four, rich nations agree to fund loss and damage energy transition. The biodiversity breakthrough came one month after another historic moment at the UN-backed conference. Delegates at COP27 in Egypt's Sharm el reached a last-minute agreement 
to create a loss and damage fund to help developing countries impacted by climate change, a decades-long demand by nations that have contributed the least to warming of the planet. Another form of climate funding, Just Energy Transition Partnerships, also went into wider use in 2022. The mechanism is meant to help emerging economies heavily dependent on coal move away from the most polluting fossil fuel in a way that doesn't leave workers and communities behind. South Africa's $8.5 billion JETP, announced in 2021, became a blueprint for these deals. Additional deals made in 2022 are set to mobilize $20 billion for Indonesia and $15 million for Vietnam. And five, changes in leaders, changes in attitudes. Voters delivered big changes in leadership in several key countries. In Brazil, Luiz Inca Lua da Silva won the presidency in part by promising to zero out deforestation in the Amazon. Pro-climate parties also won big in Australia's elections. In November, Biden met with Chinese leader Xi Jinping and reset the relationship that was suspended by the diplomatic standoff over Taiwan. Cooperation between the top two economic and emitters of greenhouse gas has been essential in cementing previous climate breakthroughs like the 2015 Paris Agreement. China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs said it was in both nations' interest to tackle climate change in a cooperative manner. And number six for climate taking methane matters more seriously. The world has been slow to understand the dangers of methane, a particularly powerful heat-trapping gas. But ever since last year's COP26 in Glasgow, nations have been signing on to global pledge to cut those emissions, which can come from oil and gas wells, coal seams, landfills, and livestock. In the lead-up to COP27 in Egypt, for instance, New nations such as Australia joined the pledge and brought the total number of countries signed up to over 150. In the U.S., meanwhile, the Biden administration pushed forward stronger rules that would require energy companies to do more to stifle methane leaks. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette. I'm your reader, Steve Forrest. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.